kind of tough, and I made them tough, I guess. I had a teacher named Mr. Herney. He was one big guy. He was a football coach, and uh, he liked to grab people right here. He'd just take his big old hands and squeeze you right here. And uh, his favorite thing to do, I think, was, uh, it's unheard of today, you'd never get away with this, but he had a paddle about that long, had holes in it. And uh, we knew that he was putting notches on there, so we tried to see who could get the most notches. And the way it went was he'd take us out in the hallway, he'd go into the music room, get the music teacher, bring him out so that there could be a witness to him not abusing us, I guess, but I felt abused. And uh, we'd bend over and whack. He'd give us he'd give us a lick. It didn't change behavior because about a month before our eighth grade graduation, he and Mr. Lindsay, who was the math teacher, took us took uh, my friend and I into the principal's office, and they gave us a lecture about our behavior and. And uh, the threat was, I think I've told you before, the threat was that they were going to take my eighth grade speech away. I didn't really care about giving the speech, but I, it, that did change my behavior. I thought my mom and dad wouldn't be real pleased about that. But when they finished their conversation, I guess you could call it, they said, it's up to you. So... I want you to think about choices in your life right now that you're making. And I want to say to you, it's up to you. What are you going to do? You can say yes, you can say no, you can turn to the left, you can turn to the right. Uh, you can ignore or you can listen. It's up to you. So the subject this morning is Solomon. And when I think of Solomon, this is the passage of Scripture that I always turn to. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read a fairly lengthy section. So listen up, perk up your ears and listen to this carefully. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places. In other words, these hillsides, they would sacrifice to, to uh, Baal and Asherah, who were these really demon gods. Sexual activity was involved in their sacrifices. So they continued to sacrifice at the high places because the temple of the Lord had not been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except, notice that word except, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. In other words, he was participating in this worship of demon gods. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. Notice in the midst of his 
apostasy almost. He was, the Lord revealed himself to him, and this is what he said. The Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God asked, Ask whatever you want me to give you. What would you say? Ask me whatever you want me to give you. What would that be? Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. In other words, himself. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant, praying for himself obviously, a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Somewhere around four million people believe. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will, be, will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as your father David did, I will give you a long life. So there's a wonderful demonstration of grace in those words from the Lord. So on your outline, fill in the blank that says, choose to live in reality. Be humble. Be humble. And notice I said live in reality. It's the way it really is. So as you may remember, Solomon was humble. He said, Lord, I look at this great people of yours and I look at myself and I feel like a little boy. I don't know whether to turn to the right or to the left. I don't know what to do and I ask for a discerning heart. Four million people were involved. So when we think about humility, uh, let, me, let me see. Chris, why don't you uh, walk, come over here with me. Just stand up. Why don't you come up here? Think you can take him? Nah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we're... Yeah, you probably could. You know, we look at a, at a person that's larger than us, and we know the consequences of getting the big head. I've experienced those consequences a few times. But it's interesting to me that he's not nearly as big as God is. And sometimes we compare ourselves, and we don't humble ourselves, which is pride, and we come against the Lord. That doesn't make sense to me, does it to you? I'm not going to try and take him on. I shouldn't try and take the Lord on either. Thank you. So humility is just seeing yourself the way you are, seeing reality, 
and living accordingly. James 4, 6, very familiar passage of Scripture, says God opposes. Think about that. He opposes the proud. In other words, if you're prideful, you've set yourself against God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the obvious question is, do you want God to be on your side? Do you want to be on his side or do you want him to be opposed to you? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a very humbling scripture. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. So when you received Jesus, what was your life like? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. In other words, he didn't choose you because of your great strength and wisdom. He cho- chose you because you didn't have great wisdom and strength. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one may boast before the Lord. In other words, if you realize your inadequacies and God acts on your behalf, you realize who did it. You don't boast about yourself, you boast on Him. So humility is is just saying, be a realist. Be a realist. Chris isn't going to take him on. That's being a realist. You're not that great, but God is. So give your servant a discerning heart. In other words, Lord, I must hear from you. And what I lo- one of the things I love about this passage is it says, the Lord says, because you have not asked for honor and wealth and all those things, I'm going to give you what you ask for, wisdom, but I'm going to also give you wealth and honor, the things that you did not ask for. So humility is one of the most important traits in the Scripture. Describes Jesus as being humble when he left heaven, came to earth, and died on the cross. That's the ultimate example of humility. Secondly, choose to make good decisions. In other words, be wise. How many of you remember your mom or your dad saying to you, listen to me? And the second time they'd say it, they'd say, you, listen to me. And then they might say, you're not listening to me. I heard that a lot. You're not listening to me. And then if you don't listen and you carry out the opposite of what they said, what did they say then? I told you. I told you this would happen. I invited you to make good choices, not bad choices. You made bad choices, so here's what you get. Now, I've used this in a smaller context before. My dog, Jake, most of you are familiar with Jake. He's a 100-pound German shepherd. I take him for a walk every morning. Ginger took him this morning because it's Sunday. But uh, when Jake was just a, a little pup, Ginger went to the store and got this dog collar. I was going to bring it this morning, and I forgot it. 
it's a it's a collar and then it's got a separate item that's got several options on it you can you can uh, have it make a noise you can have it make a louder noise you can shock him or you can really shock him so there's a warning there we usually give him the warning first and it didn't take him very long to listen to the warning so we're going along and I want Jake to go left I want him to cross the street and go right I want him to get up ahead of me he's been lagging behind He's getting too far ahead of me. I want him to stop and wait. Whatever it is, I always tell him the command first. Jake, wait. And he's learned over the years that when I say wait, he stops and he sits down. Now, he didn't do that at first. So what this shock collar has done, if I warn him, at first he didn't pay attention to that warning. But then I'd shock him, and then I'd warn him, and he'd listen. In other words, that shock collar has improved his hearing. <laughs> he listens a lot better now than he used to listen. So if I go for a while and don't take the shock collar with me, what do you think happens? He stops listening. So I improve his hearing again. Told you about the golf pro that was giving me lessons and said in frustration, when are you going to learn your way doesn't work? I think Paul should have had a shock collar. If he had shocked me a couple of times, I probably probably would have stood up and paid, paid attention to him faster. So our heart is involved in obedience. Our head is involved in obedience. And our hands, so to speak, are involved in obedience. In other words, if we follow our heart with our head and our hands follow our, our, uh, our head, then we have good consequences. Our hearing is improved. We'll do the right thing. I want to recommend that you do something. There are 30 days in most months. One month there's 28. A couple of months, three or four of the months, there are 31. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Just try this. Every day, read a chapter of Proverbs according to the day of the month. And do that for about six months. Then you might want to lay off for a while, and then every once in a while I'll go back and do, I'm doing that again right now. I'm reading again chapter day through Proverbs. Because there's, there, there's some great wisdom that can come from those Proverbs if you pay attention to them. So you've heard me say before, what is the wise thing to do in light of the past. In other words, when you make dumb decisions, it motivates you. Gosh, that was dumb. I'm not going to do that again. Why? Because of the consequences. You make a stupid decision, and you live out the consequences, it's like, I'm not doing that again. It's like the two blondes that ran into the building that I told you about. Looks like one of them would have seen the building. You're supposed to laugh now. Gosh, we can't tell Pollock jokes anymore. We can't tell North Dakota jokes anymore. I don't know what the deal is. So number one is, what is the wise thing to do in light of the past? Secondly, is, what is the wise thing to do in light of my desires for the future? One of the things, I don't remember who first said this to me, but they said, 
When you're making a decision, fast forward the tape or fast forward the CD from where you are, carry that out to the consequences. If I go this way, this is going to be the consequence. I don't want that. So carry it out this way, and this will be the kind. Yeah, that's what I want to do. If we just stop and think about that, what is the wise thing to do? Someone said, if you would just ask yourself that simple question, what is the wise thing to do? If you look back on your life, you would have saved yourself the consequences of those horrible things that you did in the past. The third question is, what is the wise thing to do in terms of current circumstances? In other words, look around and ask yourself. People are always saying, I don't know what to do. You, yeah, you do. What are the consequences of your decision in terms of the current circumstances? One of the things that helped me for the last 43 years is every week I use the expression, Sunday is coming. Now, for you, Sunday is coming may be, oh, it's a day of rest, and I get to go to church and worship the Lord and listen to hopefully a good sermon. But for me, Sunday is coming means you better be ready because you don't want to stand up in front of that group of people and have nothing to say. So somebody would say, do you want to go fishing? Sunday's coming. You want to go golfing? Sunday's coming. You want to do this, you want to do that. Every morning when I get up, Sunday's coming. So what do I do? I make a decision realizing that there's something that's coming my way that uh, is pretty important. The third uh, issue is choose to recognize and respect your vulnerabilities. So let me just ask you a question. Where are you vulnerable? You can look at your past. You can probably look at your present and understand very clearly, I'm not vulnerable there, I'm not vulnerable there, but here, this is a, vul this is a point of vulnerability for me. I have to be careful. I have to watch this because I would be vulnerable there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 says, Do not intermarry with them, that is the foreign nations. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from, the, away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth on the face of the earth, to be his people, his treasured possession. So Solomon had two vulnerabilities. The first was women. He was vulnerable to sexual temptation. He had hundreds of wives. Way back, he said, don't intermarry with these nations. It's not, it's not a racial issue. It's a religious issue. That if you marry someone of a different religion, sometimes... <coughs> even of a different denomination. Sometimes that makes a difference. They'll lead you in a direction that the Lord doesn't want you to go. Or maybe both are good, but if you disagree, then you're going to have conflict over that in your life. So his first vulnerability was women. 
His second vulnerability was the worship of other gods. Let me read you the passage. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not, <coughs> must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives. Can you imagine? Holy smoly. Whoa. That's a lot of wives. Can you imagine the plotting they did? He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So a thousand women that he could choose from. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ash Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So of all the, the things that uh, I dealt with over the years as a pastor, probably the number one thing was premarital counseling. The number one difficult thing. And the difficulty was that they would come in <clears throat> and they would be googly-eyed with each other. And my friend Ron Mel told a couple one time they were sitting next to each other on a couch and they were, oh, they were so much in love. He says, hey, you move down to that other end of that couch. I want to talk to you. So what he talked to them about was, you're not of the same faith. Or one is of faith and the other one isn't of faith. And I got more grief over that than anything else. You know, what do you do? You, who are you to tell me who to marry? Well, I can't tell you who to marry, but I can give you some wise counsel about who to marry and who not to marry. If you marry an unbeliever, for example, some of you have, I'm sure, then you know that when Sunday comes, there's going to be a conflict. What are we going to do on Sunday? Well, we're going to go skiing. No, I want to go to church. I want to go fishing. No, I want to go to church. What do you want to go to church for? One of the other caves in. You have kids. I want my kids raised as a Christian. I want my kids raised to be an atheist. I don't believe in God. Why should I bring up my kids? Or Give them a, give them a choice. Let them, let them just choose their own way. One of the things I always said to my kids, hey, we don't get up every Monday morning and decide whether you're going to go to school or not. You're going to school. On Sunday, we go to church. That's what we do. We don't argue about that. But if you're married to an unbeliever, then that's a point of debate. How are we going to bring up our kids? You'll have different values. How are we going to spend our money? Christians who live according to Scriptures use their their money much different than people who don't. Well, I think we should tithe. The unbeliever says, are you kidding me? You think we're going to take 10% of this money that I worked so hard for and give it to the Lord, give it to the church? You're crazy. Point of conflict. You have enough of those points of conflict, pretty soon what happens? destroys the relationship. 
Some people say, well, I would never compromise how I raise my kids, how I spend my how I spend my money, how I spend my weekends, whether I go to church or not. Well, you already have if you've married someone who isn't a believer and has a s- similar convictions. His second conflict was worshiping other gods. Anything you choose over the Lord is a god. God says no to this, and you choose that then you've chosen that over God. You can only have one master. Think about the logic of that. If one thing masters you, nothing else can. So if that's mastering you, then God isn't. So he worshipped other gods. And as you've probably heard someone like me say before, uh, Asherah was a female deity, sexual deity, and Baal was uh, a demon god that they worshipped. Moloch, they actually sacrificed their own children to Moloch. They'd go up on these high places and sacrifice a child to this god to appease him. Deuteronomy 12, way before Solomon was around. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods and wipe them and wipe out their names from those places. So let me ask you again, where are you vulnerable? You're vulnerable someplace, and if you're in age at all, which people in this room would be, where's your point of vulnerability? Might not be the same as mine. Probably isn't, but you have points of vulnerability. I had a counselor, I call him my paid friend, a few years ago, and I went to him for several weeks. I'd gone through an extremely difficult time was home now and going to a counselor and after several weeks he finally said to me, he says, Stan, he says, you're, you're okay. He says, I, I don't think you need to come back anymore. And I was a little disappointed when he said that so I, so I said, okay. I've been taught to ask, what's the last 10%? In other words, we've been having these conversations and there's 10% that you've held back saying to me because it might be the hardest to say, but usually that last 10% is the most beneficial. Because if it's hard to say, it'll probably make the most difference. So I said, his name was Dr. House, I said, Dr. House, what's the last 10%? And he said to me, he said, well, he said, think of a turtle. He said, it's got a hard hard shell that covers most of it but underneath there's this point of vulnerability and he told me what that vulnerability was I said thank you that one illustration helped me more than anything else that I'd seen because I realized this is where I'm vulnerable This, if I could be tempted to fall in any place it would be this 
So 1 Peter 5.8 says this. Think about where you're vulnerable. Be self-controlled and alert. Watch out. Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. So where you're vulnerable, keep your eyes open. Pay attention. Be alert. And resist him. It's coming from the enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. Be strong where you're vulnerable. Recognize that's where you could fail. Take your stand. Don't budge. Don't move. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee is one place that tells you you can run. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. When it comes to your point of vulnerability, run. Run the other direction. Don't give in to it. Don't cave in. How many of you have heard the name Bill Belichick? Everyone know who Bill Belichick is? I call him the cheater Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is one of the greatest football coaches that's ever lived, though I hate to admit it. But this is his tactic. If you know Bill Belichick, you've probably heard this. He watches hours of tape on the other team and he looks for their weakness. He looks for their point of vulnerability. They're vulnerable here. That's where we're going to attack. And he's watched all the tapes to identify what that is. And he's had pretty good success with that tactic. You suppose the devil has watched your tapes? I bet he has. He knows exactly where you're weak, where you can be tempted, where you're vulnerable, maybe by where you failed before. He's watched the game tapes on you. So pay attention. So the last thing I want you to do, there are three blanks at the bottom of your outline. I'd like for you to write in there three places where you tend to be vulnerable. You can cover it up so nobody can see it, or you can write it in code if you want to so nobody can see it. Maybe it would be good if somebody could see it so they could help you with it. Maybe it's sexual temptation. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's negativity. could be any number of things. Where are you the most vulnerable? Satan knows it. So you need to know it and pay attention to it and keep it in the front of your mind. So Lord, this morning, we don't like to admit it, but the truth is we're all vulnerable in certain places. And we want to be wise enough and humble enough to recognize where those points of vulnerability are so that we don't fail. If we don't know where they are, maybe we should talk to somebody who's the closest to us. They could probably tell us where we're vulnerable. Lord, I pray for every person at home that's watching this, 
that, Lord, you would draw a line around them and help them be wise and discerning about their points of weakness and vulnerability. They'd be humble enough to ask you for strength. They'd be wise enough to flee from that. I pray for every person in this room, Lord. You love them. You want to keep them safe. So, Lord, I pray that you just plant in their mind right now their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities. And then, Lord, give us the wisdom to call on you and ask for strength and help at that point of need.